Would you pray with me? I know we just prayed, but I'd like to pray again. Father, um, I know there are a various number of reasons why people are here this morning. You know that way better than I do. Um, But I pray that as we're here and as we hear your word, that you would use it and that you would convict us, that you'd speak from it, uh, that your spirit would be the one that moves and changes hearts this morning. Uh, We pray these things in your name. Amen. A little note of clarity. Uh, I have notes, but with the printer, with the internet being on the fritz, uh, like the, the live stream. The printer was also not working this morning, so I'm on my phone. Uh, I promise I'm not texting while I'm up, up here teaching. And for those of you in the youth group that thought it'd be funny to try to call me, I have it on airplane mode already, so sorry about that. <laughs> um, have you, I don't, I don't know if when you were growing up in youth group, this language was common, but for me it was uh, the language of recommitting your life to Christ. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like you, you heard that a lot growing up? Um, the idea is that, um, that there was a time, especially when you were younger, usually like in elementary school, you heard the gospel and you, you made a commitment to follow Christ then. And for many years it seemed like that commitment was true. You know, you were going to church, you were being obedient to your parents, you were following all of, you know, the, the rules. And then there was a moment for you where your friends were doing something, or you got tempted by something in the world, something terrible happened, and you said, you know what, I'm not so sure about this whole gospel thing, if it's real, if it's what I want for my life. And so you stopped following for maybe a couple years or a few years, and then yeah, there's another moment in high school, maybe at a conference or at a camp or at another point, a big turning point in your life where you're like, whoa, I know I need Jesus again, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to re-up. I'm going to recommit myself to Christ. I don't think maybe it worked the first time, but I'm going to do this again. I don't know if that's a fair characterization of all recommitments, but that was kind of the idea that at least I had when I was growing up, of the, the idea of recommitment. Like, I, I, did, I did commit once, but now I'm not really living like that commitment was real, and I don't know if it was like really, like if it really worked, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do that again. I actually worked at a summer camp my freshman year of college, after my freshman year of college. I went and worked at a summer camp with elementary school kids as the Bible teacher. And so as the Bible teacher, there was this uh, presentation on Thursdays where we would share the gospel and we'd invite kids to come for like an altar call. And if kids hadn't committed their life to Christ at all, we would say, okay, you need to pray this prayer. This is, this is how you commit your life to Christ. And then if kids had already done that, but they were feeling uncertainty, I'd say, okay, if you're, you're going to recommit your life to Christ and this is how you need to pray. And I was a budding young Calvinist at the time and didn't really know, and I, I started thinking about God's grace and His power and salvation, how it's not something we repeat or words we say that save us, but that was the emphasis of my gospel presentation. It was the work of Christ that was what saved us. His power to seek me out and to change my heart and to show me Himself, and 
that started making me question this, especially because as I'm, as I'm reading Romans 8 and I see that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, there's no need to re-up, you know? If you're saved, you're saved. There's no, your, your recommitment is just, it's, it's, it's not needed for you to, to, to be saved again because if He saved you once, even if you've lived differently before then, His salvation's still good because it's Him who's done it. And so I've backed away from the language of recommitment as I'm sure that some of you have. But what do you do when somebody looks like they were at one time following Jesus and now they're not. And it's, they're living just like the rest of the world. Even though maybe they might still be claiming to be a Christian, you saw the, the gospel spark in them one time, at one time and you were pretty confident, but now they're not following God anymore. They're living like just the rest of the world. Uh, join me in Galatians 4, 8 through 20. So, context of where we're at so far, the Galatians, they were Gentile people. And in the province of Galatia, there was idol worship as the most common uh, religion before Christianity came in, probably even after Christianity came in. Um, and that's where this, the church was made up of people who were predominantly used to be idol worshipers. So as Christina read, it says, they were formerly enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. That was their former life. They were worshiping idols. Um, but then as the church began to grow, there was a Jewish presence in the area, and they noticed the growth of, uh, of these, this Christian movement, and they started saying, you know what? After Paul left, they came in and said, yeah, it's good to want to follow God, but this, that's not, Christ is not the only thing you need. If you're going to really follow God, if you're going to go to the next tier of Christian membership, you've really got to start following the Jewish law as well. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow the rituals. That's what you've got to do. And Paul says that's not the gospel at all. That's a different gospel. And um, he's write, written the book of Galatians to address the, the fallacy that you need something other than Jesus, that there's something on top of Jesus that you can add. And so a natural question is, why then was the law even introduced by God, the same one who gave us Christ? And he's just explained that. In the la that's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Pastor Mark just talked about how we've received adoptions as sons, but that because God has set up the law as a guardian and a manager until the fullness of time came when Christ sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. That God's work, it was God's faithfulness and his work towards us to, to make it easier for us to receive Christ at the, when, when he came, um, that, that the law was given. And that's where we find ourselves now in Galatians 4, 8 through 20. So like I said, the Galatians were, they were idol worshipers. And that's what he means when he says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Then he says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? It's pretty clear what he's equating with each other, right? They used to be idol worshippers. What are they struggling with now? Following the Mosaic law. He's saying that following the Mosaic law and idol worship, paganism, have a common denominator with each other. What is it? 
these elementary principles of the world. He gives us a couple examples in this passage. He says in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Well, we all do that. What's the big deal? Is keeping a calendar wrong? No. What he's saying is that worship driven simply by a calendar is just like paganism. It's you are worshiping based on how, where the earth is and the rotation around the sun. What day it is, what month it is, what year it is, what season it is. And there's all Jewish festivals that are lined up like that, but he says if you boil it down to that, if your worship is based on just following this Mosaic calendar, what's any different than how you used to follow the calendar when you were pagans? You're worshiping based on a calendar. He gives another example. In verse 17, he says, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. So, they're introducing the law. The, the making much of, uh, of them can be like saying they were zealous for them. They were really passionate trying to pursue them. They say, these Judaizers, these people coming in and introducing the law, they may seem like they're really into you right now, like they want to help you a lot, but that's, they're just doing that under false pretense. What they really want to do is that they're saying, oh, you can have this next tier of faith by accepting the Mosaic Law. When you accept the Mosaic Law, guess who's the best at the Mosaic Law? The guys who introduced it. And so now they're going to say, okay, you're in the club, you're not, you're doing well, mm, you're still kind of a lower tier, I've seen you, you know, you're not really following, the, I, you're, not, you're not circumcised, you're not, you're not in. So they're, they're trying to shut people out, that's really what they're trying to do, and elevate themselves in this social standing. Social standing is an elementary principle of the world, that everybody else functions in that way. Everybody, everybody in the world functions in a way that they want to gain social status. So if you're worshiping based on gaining social status, you're, that's an elementary principle of the world. Basically, to define elementary principles, they're the basic building blocks of what drives everyone in the world to do what they do. And if you're driven by every, like what everyone else in the world is doing and not by Christ, you're worshiping based on elementary principles of the world. Some examples of elementary principles of the world. Are you worshiping based on a calendar? It's Sunday. It's Christmas. It's Easter. We're free. We're not doing anything. Are you worshiping based on social status? It's what we've always done. It's where my friends and family go. My parents would look down on me if I didn't. Are you based? I think this is something we all have had to think through. Why are we worshiping? What are we doing that's actually like, determining why we're following God and what we're doing to worship because of what we've just been through, right? Like, we've all just been through a pandemic and, and are still going through it, obviously, in some ways. We're standing outside right now, we're sitting. And you've had to evaluate, what is actually driving my worship? Am I going to stop worshiping because we can't be at a building? Am I going to stop worshiping because there's no programs? Or the songs I don't like? Or 
go on down the list. Am I going to worship? Am I going to use my worship exclusively as a, a political platform for what I'm thinking right now? Guess what? The rest of the world is driven by that stuff. That's clear. You can see clearly how the rest of the world is being governed by what the government says, by what the political movements are. That's what the rest of the world is pumped about right now. If, if you don't believe me, turn on your Facebook for a second. Everybody's got a, a podium and a platform to say something about how much they're pumped about whatever is going on, and the rest of the world is functioning that way. That's what's driving them. And those are elementary principles. And if we worship based on that, we're worshiping just like them. But our worship should be driven based on Christ in us. That's what Paul goes on to say in verse 19. So Paul uses the picture of our relationship to these elementary principles as slavery. He says, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by are that, that those enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And then he goes and says, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary princes of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? The picture of slavery is used. That's because these elementary principles, though they promise you a lot, they promise you peace and comfort and justice, they promise you social status, everything that's driven by these elementary principles of the world, they don't actually give you any of them. They, they can't deliver on any of those promises, really. They can give you maybe a facade of that, a fake picture, but really they can only accomplish one thing, these elementary principles of the world. And that's what the forces of darkness have them, are using them for. It's just like worshiping an idol. It's a stone. It's a rock. It can't do anything. It can't move. It's not alive. The only thing that that idol can do is separate you from worshiping God. And these elementary principles of the world, they do the same thing. They do the same thing that that rock does. If we're driven by them, we're driven just by the, like the rest of the world. That's idolatry in our hearts, and it separates us from worshiping Christ. It's slavery. And the bizarre thing is that it's not just the rest of the world who's been trapped in the, by these elementary principles, it's often those of faith who have seen the freedom that we have in Christ who are willing and ready to just offer their hearts right back into that slavery to be like the rest of the world. The opposite, though, the opposite of that is Christ formed in you. That's what Paul wants for these Galatians. Maybe you relate with the heart of Paul here. See, he's put all this work into evangelizing the Galatians and caring for them and sharing the gospel with them. And then he's left, and it seems like all the work is undone. That they, are, they were once so excited about the gospel. It says that they, so he, he was there because of a sickness he had. 
and he shared the gospel with them, and they were so grateful that caring for his sickness wasn't even a burden. They were so grateful that, I think he had a problem with his eyes, because he uses the picture, he says, if you, you were so thankful to me that you would have plucked your eyes out of your own face and given them to me if you could have. That's how pumped you were about the gospel at that point. You would have gouged your eyes out and given them to me. That's pretty excited about the gospel. But now he's seeing this law taking hold. Maybe you feel like that in some ways with people you have shared the gospel with. You had once seen be so excited about Christ, but now seemingly are following the elementary principles of the world. Maybe that they're your friends, your family, your coworkers, your children. I know there's plenty of people out in this group right here who are thinking of specific people that they have seen who were once side by side with them, who they thought were believers, and who now, maybe even though claiming to still be believers, these people are clearly not following Christ. And that's pretty heartbreaking, isn't it? What can we learn from Paul's pursuit of the Galatians who seem to have fallen away? He has fear that he may have labored over them in vain. Let me ask you this question. First question I want to ask you, if, you are, if you're feeling in that position right now, is what would laboring in vain mean to you? What was your end goal in sharing the gospel with someone? Was it that they would profess faith? Was it that they would pray a prayer? Was it that they would go to church? That they would have some understanding of what the Bible says? Or were you looking to see Christ formed in them? See, those all things, not to say that a profession of faith or praying a prayer or reading your Bible or going to church are bad things, but if that is simply what you're looking for, uh, often those things can be done without Christ actually being in someone. And it can create a very superficial, cultural, elementary principles of the world type Christian that follows a calendar instead of Christ. If that was your end goal and you stopped there, then it shouldn't be much of a surprise to you that that's where they stayed. Are you looking for Christ formed in them or some other superficial thing? What would mean that you labored in vain? Second question I want to ask you is based on uh, verse 12. He says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have become as you are. You did me no wrong. So what he means there is that he wants... This, the, the irony of the situation is that Paul comes from the most Jewish of Jew place in the world. Like, he was the, the best Jew of the best Jew. And when he came to them, into Galatia, he became like a Gentile. He lived with them. He ate with them. They, they treated him when he was sick. He became as they were. But now, what is happening is these Judaizers have come in and said, oh, Paul's not giving you the full truth of the, the, of the gospel that you need to follow this law to. So these Gentiles, these people who were once Gentiles, are now saying, Paul, um, you're not really cool with us anymore because you haven't been giving us the law. So they're rejecting him because he's not Jewish enough for them. The irony of that situation. Paul wants to make it clear that he never put any of these false goals for them to follow. He said, I didn't want you to become a Jew like me. I wanted you to follow Christ. 
did you, in sharing the gospel, put any false goals of what that looks like, that you want them to, to look like you. I, I was trying to think of a good picture of what that looks like, and maybe this isn't as relatable, but it's, it makes the picture clear. Think about Chris and Evie Jones. What if they, in setting up, you know, in, in, in proclaiming the gospel to the pay tribe, are like, okay, now that you got the word of God, here's what we need to do. We need to build a church, and everybody, you got to wear at least button-downs or polos. That's, what makes, that, that's how you go to church. And, uh, yeah, you gotta, you got to make sure you, you, you look nice, and um, we're going to have pews out here, and this is how we're going to live now. Like, if they put these false cultural things, these false cultural expectations on the church there, that would be ridiculous, right? But I think in minor ways, sometimes when we're sharing the gospel with people, it's that our goal is not for them to know Christ, it's that they would start to look more like me. What, was your, what is your goal um, what, what, have you have, or what have you given any false picture of what, any false expectation of what following Christ looks like? Paul did not want to give any of that. Third question I want to ask you is, um, hold on here, let me find my spot in my outline. This is super tiny. The third question I want to ask you is, are you in labor over the person you are trying to share the gospel with? Paul gives that picture. He says, my little children for whom I, again, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. For any of those out here who have given birth or been in the delivery room during the process, you know, parents, you understand the anguish of childbirth, especially those moms out there, that there's this deep longing in your heart to see life come, to see the, the first breath taken, to see your child make it out safely. And you're willing to endure pain that's incomparable to any other human. Your body's literally being broken for hours, sometimes days. But you're so willing, you're pushing forward to see that new life come. You're enduring all of this pain to see this new life come. And just so you can, see, you can hold your breathing, crying little child. Paul feels like he's doing that again. That he is willing to go through these labor pains again just to see the signs of life of Christ in them. And he's willing to sacrifice for it. Clearly, Paul is willing to sacrifice pain. I mean, the first time he preached the gospel there, he was stoned and thrown out of the city as though he was dead. And then he came back in. And right now, he has this clearly this heart and love for the Galatian church. That's clear. He calls them his brothers. He calls them his little children. Like he's using terms that show how much he loves them. But he's willing to risk all of his relationship with them. He says, they're making much of you so they, that you can make much of them. 
He said, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. Basically, what he's boiling down to there is like, I want you to make, I want you to make much of Christ, and I don't care if that means you don't make much of me anymore. I just want you to believe the right thing. I just want Christ to be formed in you. That's why he's willing to have this confrontation with them to say, this is the most important thing. And if that means, if having that confrontation with them meant that they no longer wanted to hear from Paul, well, Paul was willing to risk that. Because what he wanted, what his end goal was, was Christ formed in them. That picture, that word, you might say, what does that mean? That, seems, that sounds like a general, that's just a really general term. And it really is. But the, the wording there is like a, a picture of an embryo in the womb. Like that there's a hint that Christ is growing in them. That, that Christ is there and is going to grow into fullness. That's, a, that's the promise we all have as believers. That those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That we as believers are all hopefully growing into Christ and one day will be uh, in glory and uh, the Christ will complete that picture in us. But he wanted to see the essence of Christ beginning to grow in them. That Christ was in them and growing in them. That was his end goal. To see Christ in them. So maybe as you are hearing this, you're thinking, oh, this sounds like a lot of to-dos and not a lot of Christ. Well, the reason that we pursue people with the gospel is because of Christ formed in us. Because what does Christ look like? What's the example of Christ in this? We just talked about this last week, that Christ is the one who has done the work to secure our salvation. He was the one who made all of his promises and the law. He set the stage for him to come and be faithful to them. That No one else could have done that. He was the opposite of these weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. What was Christ? He was strong. He did something that no one else could ever do. Fulfilling the promises of God. Paying for our sins to give us freedom from our sins giving us adoption as sons, sending the Spirit of God into our hearts, securing us the inheritance of Christ. All of those things only Christ was able to do. Defeating the powers of darkness, only Christ was able to do that. He was the opposite of these weak and worthless elementary principles. He is strong and able. And he's worthwhile. He's worthy. He is not worthless. He is worthy. Because he secured us all of this precious inheritance by paying with his most precious blood. That a price that only he was able to pay. He is strong and he is worthy and he is passionate about showing himself to this lost world far more than you and I are passionate about showing the lost. So as Christ is formed in us, we should be passionate about pursuing the lost, those enslaved to these elementary principles of the world, not just a superficial level, but to see Christ actually formed in them. That's why we're passionate about it because that's what Christ is doing. Who's forming Christ in them? Not you or I. Christ is. And so as we follow the example of Christ, we are passionate about seeing Christ formed in the lost. Maybe as you're thinking about slavery to elementary principles, 
when you're thinking about someone who, wants to be, who once used to be passionate about the gospel, eye-gouging passionate about the gospel, but is now seemingly like the rest of the world, maybe the person you're thinking of is not a friend or a family member or a coworker or a child. Maybe that person is you. Maybe you're perplexed about your own situation. Paul says, I wish I could be, be present with you now and change my tone for I'm perplexed about you. You know why he's confused? He says, once I saw that gospel flame, and now it's looking like you don't even know Christ. I'm so confused. Maybe looking at your own heart, you say, man, I remember a time when I once was so passionate for the gospel, but now, I, if I'm honest, I, I call myself a Christian, I attend church, but I am living just like the rest of the world. It is elementary principles that are guiding my heart. If you were there, what should you do? How would the Galatians have heard this letter? That he's in anguish, Paul was in the anguish of childbirth until Christ was formed in them. That even though it looked like that happened at one time, he, want, he, he just wants surety that Christ is there growing in them. So I, I would say that the proper response, if you find yourself there enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, is to again commit your life to Christ. To recommit your life to Christ. What do I mean by that? I obviously am not saying that your commitment or your words or this prayer you pray that there is once a salvation that you had that's now gone bad. Christ, Christ's work is final and complete and sure, and we can trust in that. I'm not asking for you to do something that will once again grant you your inheritance. Because we can trust in the work of Christ. We've just been over that. We've established that. Here's two things that I think recommitting means is that it's time to draw a line in the sand. That the elementary principles of the world that you know you're giving your heart to, that you're voluntarily giving your heart to slavery again in, that you say, don't, you're not doing it anymore. You're not giving your heart there anymore. What does it say in Galatians 5.1? It says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm. That's action on your part. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Stop doing it. Stop giving your heart to that stuff. Draw the line, and herefore, you're not giving your heart to that stuff anymore. You're not living like the rest of the world. Christ is governing your worship. And secondly, Paul goes on in Galatians 5.16 to talk about the fruits of the Spirit. And this is what he says. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? I believe it means to live in dependence on God. To, as you face your daily life, and everything that you go through, everything, all the world that's calling for your heart, and every scenario in work and family and life, to ask for the Spirit's guiding help to lead you through that day, to lead you through those moments in a way that honors God, to be, to be dependent on the power of God in you, in the Spirit. I think it means that as you walk by the Spirit, you're asking for Him to show you Jesus 
and everywhere you look, especially in the Word of God, for him to open your eyes to the Word of God, for it not to be ritualistic or not to be legalistic, but for you to, to open your eyes to see who Christ is and what he's done and let that transform your heart in dependence of the Spirit. And it says then that if you do those things, if you walk in, in, if you walk in dependence to the Spirit, if you walk by the Spirit, you can't, first of all, you cannot gratify the desires of the flesh. Or in other words, you're not giving your heart back to those elementary principles. If you're walk, when you walk by the Spirit, you cannot give your heart back to the elementary principles of the, of the world. That's the, the, you can't do both at the same time. Secondly, you'll start to see the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when you taste the fruit of that Spirit... What does that taste like? That tastes like Christ formed in you. Let me pray. And I'll invite the worship team to come back up. God, um, I ask for my own heart, and I ask for everyone here gathered in your name that you would purify us, God that if we've been offering our hearts to elementary principles of the world, if our, if our faith has been tainted by submission, by slavery again, to any of these things, that we would, we would draw a line in the sand. We would, we would let Christ govern our hearts and what you've done. Lord, we need you. We're dependent on you. Would your spirit work in us today? as we live our lives to follow you, to live like you, to see you in our lives, to bring you glory, to see you in the word, would you show us yourself more clearly and lead us into dependence on you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.